Welcome to Our Soul, a podcast by Kelly Fox and Terry Williams from the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. So Israel-Palestine's a thing, and it's pretty fascinating to hear how so many people are, you know, chiming in as experts now on what has been an evolving conflict for decades and an evolving conflict of um, our international morality of our national priorities uh, and I, I've, I've just got to be really upfront here like I fundamentally see the Israel-Palestine conflict as a conflict of an aggressive military on people who have responded in the ways they have because of continued military aggression, not just at the hands of the state of Israel, but, you know, many, many nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find it I find it fascinating when you frame this conflict and this struggle in this way, how many people immediately either love it or hate it, they're either on your side or they're against you. Everything is, you know, either or. And the fact is, with any colonialist situation that has been long-term brewing, there are many sides and nobody's a winner. Like, mm-hmm. literally no one. I, I know we we have, um, you know, many uh, colleagues and friends who spend a great deal of time in Israel and Palestine we have colleagues and friends who are part of aid relief agencies helping all kinds of innocent people across that region. And at its core, the people who suffer in this conflict are suffering because of colonialism and Western imperialism and, frankly, the hundred-year-long inability of um, white colonial states to get their act together. Right. So like we we see a huge link, those of us who work in repro, a huge link between the violent oppression of individuals and the constant state violence that prevents healthy upbringings for children. There's a huge link between that and reproductive health rights and justice. Right. Palestine and the situation in Palestine right now and for the last 150 years is and has been a reproductive justice issue because people have a right to parent the children they have in safe environments free from state-sanctioned violence, right? Mm -hmm. That is like core and essential part of reproductive justice framework that our, our black mothers gave to the world and said, this is what, as black mothers, we expect, uh, in, in our, our future, in our freedom. Um, I, have been privileged to travel to the Holy Land. I I love how people refer to it that way because um, it's a great way to avoid saying uh, any particular name because you don't want to alienate people by, you know, saying Israel or Palestine or Israel-Palestine. Just, like, even how we talk about this issue automatically makes people mad. So, like, you know, Christian scholars go over there and call it the Holy Land because, you know, (laughs) well, it's holy to lots of people. But, like, that region, I've been very blessed to be able to to go and, you know, witness a lot of the work that's going on, particularly um, work around peacemaking. 
among all of the many factions that make up that that regional milieu and it's as messy as you can imagine right like so when when we start talking about Israel Palestine people go well, why are you worried about that your your you know reproductive rights organization in Ohio let me tell you folks uh injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and you cannot tell me that what folk are experiencing in Gaza is all that dissimilar to some of the violence we've seen in these United States and in fact in the Buckeye State right here in mm-hmm. Ohio mm-hmm. right it's not the same but there are a lot of threads that run through it mm-hmm. so i'm interested kelly to know you know how how your experience has been um in witnessing a lot of this like where's where are you coming from when you turn on the television and see this kind of state-sanctioned violence and these unsafe spaces for families and, and children. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually, like, really glad to be talking to you specifically about this as someone who knows a lot about, um, you know, this whole situation because I... It feels like every week I'm learning some other way that the public... He- or the public school system has failed me and has uh, failed to teach me things that are important to the work that I do now. Um, I'll be completely honest, um, I am 24 years old, and I have not really known anything about anything that has gone on in Palestine, or Israel, or whatever you, the Holy Land, as you said, um, and I just, when we were doing, um, our last book club book in April, uh, Conflict is Not Abuse, it was kind of the first time that as an adult I had read anything about um, this this whole situation and the first time that I kind of like had my eyes open to the ways that like basically it sounds like Israel is taking a small action and turning it from something that could be seen as a conflict and taking that as an excuse to abuse uh, Palestine and to attack based off of little things, little assumptions that they make about the attacks that are being made on them. Uh, Which goes back to that, you know, the uh, conflict is not abuse. Just because uh, somebody else is existing near you doesn't mean (laughs) that they are attacking you by existing near you. And that doesn't mean that you get to attack them and kill them and say things about them. Um, And so I kind of see this really connected to um, all the studying that we've been doing around um, restorative and transformative justice. And also, like you said, um, it's these things are not dissimilar. (laughs) The the things that we see around reproductive health rights and justice in the United States and in Ohio um, just feel very similar to (laughs) these attacks. Um, And it just it baffles me. The ways that defending yourself is being misconstrued and misseen as uh, violence. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I think that connection is really critical. You know, this this connection with the the text, um, conflict is not abuse, because we're in a position where, you know, the the first thing that people see when we start talking about an intifada, which is the old language for. Um, you know, disturbances and border conflicts there. But, you know, this this current 
struggle, the first thing people see are Hamas rockets, right? Hamas has fired rockets into Israel and um, Israel's retaliating. You know, politicians get up and say things like, oh, of course, Israel has a right to defend itself. And, and we all like nestle into that regular like rut of thinking around, well, here we go again. The struggle in that, though, is to understand that, you know, Hamas is this very um, well-organized and relatively small organization um, that employs really, really crazy tactics at times and is not representative of the whole of the populace of uh, Palestine. They are the ruling government right now in Gaza, but that's simply because Gaza has been kept so poor and so desperately in need of basic services, you know, from divestment in in Israel, that they're in a place where they are turning to really desperate measures. You know, you can't get certain construction uh, items even shipped into Gaza. Many people go without water for, you know, extended periods of time. Electricity is scarce. It is a really, really, really terrible place to be, but there's no other place for these millions of people to be. You know, this million-plus population of Gaza, folk in the West Bank, they have been strategically blocked from thriving by the Israeli state, right? And because of that, they react in these violent ways that are small but meaningful, you know, violent attacks. And they are responded to with just overwhelming force. You know, these huge, huge uh, airstrikes that come in, multiple bombings, that is the essence of that text that you mentioned and that we've been working with through, you know, the Transformative and, and Restorative Justice book, book Club, the idea that conflict is not abuse, that just because there has been a conflict, there has been an issue, that does not mean that this is necessarily abuse, and it's mm-hmm. definitely not worthy of a totalitarian response, right? Yeah. There's a big difference between Palestinian resistance and Israeli militarization yeah. in that space. And uh, I I went and found my copy of Conflict is Not Abuse and got it out because I knew I highlighted a couple sections from uh, the chapter on, uh, let's see, the name of the chapter is Supremacy, Trauma, and the Justification of Injustice. The Israeli War on Gaza is the name of the chapter in Conflict Does Not Abuse. And there's this one section on page 235, and it says, um, instead it is the bystanders who actively avoid the responsibility of intervention um, by invoking the theory of both sides. This claim allows cowards an excuse not to act, not to confront the self-righteousness of the bullies. The Jewish bully, like any bully, cannot be wrong, therefore cannot negotiate, and therefore, or and so, defends their lack of self with a claim of moral superiority. The bystander refuses to engage them and instead insists that time will, imp- will produce change so they don't have to. This false claim is intended to obscure their avoidance of responsibility to intervene in a way that facilitates resolution instead of conflict. Um... And I, I want to make it clear also that, like, just because uh, the the title The Jewish Bully was mentioned here doesn't mean that, like, just because uh, a lot of Israelis are Jewish does not mean that we're saying that Jewish people are bad. I mean, I don't think that that should have to be said, but just in case, I just want to make 
it clear that like just because this is happening does not is not an excuse to be anti-Semitic. Because um, <clears throat> just like how uh, not all Palestinians are Hamas, uh, not all like people who are pro uh, Israel are or not all Jewish people <laughs> are pro Israel. So like it, it no no group is a monolith, and I hate that people keep putting things under monoliths. Um, some other quotes. right and all oh, right, go ahead. Just to just to tag team in on that, as as a Christian pastor in a Reformed tradition church, I I would never use that phrase, the Jewish bully, mm-hmm. simply because I'm aware of all the ways that my Christian tradition and the Christian tradition of the Reformation has engaged anti-Semitism and, and anti-Jewishness. You know, the concept of the Jewish bully, that there is somehow, you know, this, this uh, you know, specter of Judaism, this, this Jew who is oppressing other people, is such a powerful anti-Semitic trope that, you know, if I were to rewrite this text, I would, I would probably say something like the Israeli bully, uh-huh. because there is a difference, a huge difference, yes. between Judaism and Israel, that the state of Israel is not fundamentally the same as Jews worldwide, right? The Jewish diaspora is so big and broad and varied, and there's a conflation that happens there. The other piece that I, I would lift up is that for many Jews, I would say for most Jews, um, they are used to that kind of coded language being used in an oppressive way toward them and people saying things like, well, that's not really what we meant when it was clearly what was meant. You know, that kind of anti-Semitic process. So yeah. I, I always get, I, I get concerned in these dialogues because I think there are a lot of people who don't understand that there can be really legitimate and long-standing um, fears of persecution and violence Mm-hmm. that are held together with a reality of uh, people being in power. You know, yeah. the Israeli state is a powerful entity that can oppress people. But at the same time, Judaism and Jewish people the world around have been hated and reviled in, in different systems, you know, through anti-Semitic uh, ideologies for generations. And we we have to hold both of those in tension, I think, which is, you know, it's part of why uh, the text, Conflict is Not Abuse, talks about conflict being healthy, you know, yeah. holding holding our privilege along with our, our sorrows. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, another section that, uh, this section uh, sadly hits too close to home um, on page 238, um, there are two different passages that I have highlighted, and um, the the first one um, is something that I am reminded of more recently. And all, by the way, the stuff mentioned in this book is from uh, 2014, and so obviously a lot happens in seven years. But uh, this is that's what this part of this book was written from from July of 2014. Um, so on the top of page 238, it says. Uh, I shared a video from, I'm going to mispronounce all these names, um, Al Jazeera uh, in Arabic, of a, a stunned young reporter strapped into a helmet and bulletproof vest standing in front of a vista of bombed homes and apartment buildings billowing smoke. 
He starts to speak into the camera, then trembles, falters, and finally breaks down in tears. This, after all, is who we were, or who we who were actually paying attention were seeing all day long. People wailing, people screaming, people's hearts literally torn out. The Palestinians, whom we have shunned for decades, whom we have silenced so we could blame, were now in our lives daily and they were crying. Netanyahu accused Palestinians of displaying their telegenetically dead. And like, that's kind of like, that's, mm. but like this, this seeing, uh, like I, my heart goes out to the, the reporters and the people who are like having to just do their job and who are feeling it and like are, are wrapped up in everything that's going on. It is heartbreaking. And it reminds me of the ways that like organizers and activists here around the um, the movement for black lives and the movement for reproductive justice like have to also like hold hold the pain that they're feeling and move forward. And um, <laughs> as someone who's had to push through pain, like I feel for those people um, and and resonate with them on that. And I'm like tearing up just thinking of having to having to do that job. It's just. Mm. it's it's a lot and and then later something that hits way too close to home um also on page 238 uh it says honestly it could have been taking place in new york Uh, they're talking about um demonstrators in uh palestine and it says honestly it could have taken place in new york they were westernized casual some were religious but not many they carried palestinian flags but no weapons no protective clothing chatting with each other many were smiling something was being expressed and it energized the crowd then a few minutes later a very large group of israeli riot police appeared they were armed and carried sticks and wore helmets and visors and bulletproof vests this was not a demonstration that needed repressed or controlled there was nothing dangerous or inappropriate or out of control and yet this clearly didn't matter the police ritual was designed to enforce obedience and an exercise in overreaction, overstatement, projection, and dehumanization. And that, this idea of like, uh, what is like a casual demonstration, not a threat, being met with an obvious threat is something that, I mean, I can relate to and I have seen. Uh, and... It, I don't know that that makes it clear to me like it's Terry and I were talking about this earlier and uh, this this whole as someone who knows like very little about um, Israel Palestine uh, this whole thing reminds me or makes me think of like if you were to go to a park and uh, you see a beehive with lots of bees in it living their life in their little home, hanging out, buzzing around, and then you decide that those bees do not deserve to be there in their home, in their little tree, just um, hanging out. And maybe it's because like you yourself need a new home and you've been placed there by somebody else because on both sides of this, and and I'm not saying both sides are good, that's not what I'm saying here, Um, but the... We'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Anyway, you so you see those bees in the in the park, and you decide that they don't get to be there. So you take out a machine gun and you just take them out. And yeah, those bees will probably sting you as a result of being shot at. 
but that doesn't mean that you can turn around and say oh these bees stung me and so that's why i shot at them like that's not that's not how that works um yeah but i'm i'm also thinking and uh thinking about the conversation that also me and terry had a little bit before this um about the ways that the jewish people after the holocaust were sent uh to to this area and it's kind of like spread from there and that um that kind of feeling at least of like having to gather up power and being overly defensive i don't know i'm just seeing this a lot from a trauma perspective and i hope that i'm yeah. expressing this right so terry yeah and and there's you know the the piece for me that explains so much of the behavior that that we see in israel palestine and it also explains for me the trauma behavior that we see around um, reproductive violence that's done here in the United States is the mimetic theory from Rene Girard, right? Most people have not uh, deeply studied Rene Girard. Uh, even people who went to seminary probably got through without having to be subjected to too much of that reading. However, those of us who are ethicists really, really, really enjoy uh, the model of mimetic theory with Rene Girard because it explains so much. So here I'm going to give you like I'm going to give you the like eighty thousand dollar theological education <laughs> distillation in half half a, a minute about Rene Girard. Rene Girard's mimetic theory posits that people have desire not in a linear method, not like I see something and automatically want it, but I see something. And when I see other people wanting that thing, or I see that that thing is wanted by many, I also kind of want it too. And I teach myself and learn from this community what to want and what to desire based upon the, the mimesis, right? What, what is repeated again and again and again. The application of that, though, also extends to violence, that I know inherently what the pain that I have experienced feels like. So if I want to hurt somebody else, I know how bad it hurts to be hurt the way that I was hurt. So I go back through my library of painful experiences and I pick out some of the most painful things that were done to me and I do that to others when my desire is to hurt them. So you fast forward into the conversation around Israel-Palestine and you see that these folk who were placed in this, this region, you know, after the Balfour Declaration in 1917, were forced back into, you know, Palestine because they were Jewish and, you know, the rest of the colonial world said, we don't want you here, you know, very, very anti-Semitic, very... Uh, cruel ways of being. And then eventually, of course, the response to violence during the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. These people have known what it is like to experience terrible violence and existential threat to their identity, right? They have lived through, of course, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, these existential wars with neighboring states that sought literally to drive Israel off of the map, to exterminate, that word very explicitly used, to exterminate Jews, right? And we can't overstate how disgusting that phrasing is and how disgusting that aim is, right? That violence that was forced on Jewish people became embedded in the state of Israel. And the state of Israel 
now is acting out in ways that are very similar to the violence that was done to it in its very infancy. And that mimetic violence concept of you hurt other people in the ways that other people have hurt you, you just continue that on. You know, you are hurt by someone and then you hurt someone else in that same way. That process eventually leads to a whole world that shares your hurt and a world in which you are participating in the violence of scapegoating one group of people as if they are the people, if we just hurt them well enough, it will end this cycle, which we, of course, know isn't true. Yeah. Now, all of that to say, that's the same kind of thinking that goes into the extremist anti-abortion sentiment that we see here in the United States. People, you know, trying to force other people into religious decisions that they themselves were forced into. Right, This constant, I had to do it, so you have to do it. I had to do it this way, so you're going to have to do it this way. Instead of acknowledging that other people with other religious traditions and with other ethical um, you know, decisions that they've made can indeed make a different outcome out of the same decision that's given to them. Right? That's the problem that we see you know, across these, these issues that – you do not have to continue the violence that has been done to you. You can choose to allow transformation instead of mimicry to be your legacy. You know, you, you can choose a transformative justice in this moment. And to think about what transformative justice would look like in Palestine, it sure as hell doesn't look like bombing you know, uh, hotels and hospitals and other places, you know, where civilians are simply because you had a couple of people shoot some rockets across the border at you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, if we, if we keep it up, uh, those bees are, you know, to use your analogy, those bees are not going away, Mm -hmm. right? Those bees are only going to be more dispersed and the threat is going to be greater and more random, which is what we're starting to see in, in that region right now. It is it is terribly heartbreaking though like like you said Kelly to see real people this this is not a theoretical exercise this is not Rene Girard you know sitting up in an ivory tower somewhere these are real honest to god people suffering and and you know living in fear and dying in fear in Gaza and in Israel and you know at this point Israeli politics have given us this outcome right Years, decades of Israeli policies of increasing, you know, uh, settlements in the West Bank and, uh, you know, across the region, increasing the these wall building exercises where they build walls that cut people off from their jobs or, you know, make a, a person's commute turn from 20 minutes into three hours, right? All of that work and all of that money and American money, right, $3.8 billion of American taxpayer money every single year going into this has not made people safer, right? And let me tell you, we in Ohio, you in Columbus can tell people that more investment in militarization does not make people safer, right? Having having more helicopters doesn't, uh, you know, keep the people of Columbus safer at this point. Yeah. Safety is not a, a function of how violent you can be, yeah. right? How safe you are is not the same as how violent you can be. Yeah, I just, I just want to say before we go 
it doesn't take much to be able to know enough about what's going on to be able to say that what's going on is bad and that it is unjustified and that it is uh, terrible. I, like I said, literally know nothing about uh, Israel-Palestine outside of what I read in Conflict Is Not Abuse, um, outside of what Terry has told me, and outside of some like very low-level research that I've done. So I just hope that you can feel empowered to um, to be able to say something and not be the bystanders that are caught in the middle of this both and situation. And it's also possible to be to be able to say that, you know, this is messed up and that what's going on is bad and like should not be happening. And at the same time, not be anti-Semitic. So um, I just want to encourage you to embrace the complexity that is uh, dealing with humanity <laughs> and people who make bad decisions. I, I think we're going to do a podcast exclusive about the news that we just got about Mississippi and Roe versus Wade that might not be long for this world. So if you're interested in that. Yeah. And so. So Mississippi. Oh, my Lord. So we we all knew that the Roe versus Wade challenge, you know, being accepted to the Supreme Court was going to happen. We knew we were going to wake up some morning and it was going to be like, oh, there's this case that might, you know, threaten Roe and it's coming to the Supreme Court. The reality is this case that's coming from Mississippi is sadly one of the most predictable things I think we we have been able to see in repro properly in the last 20 years. You know, the case is uh, particularly considered around a 15-week ban. So it's this arbitrary number of, you know, Mississippi wanted to say any abortion after 15 weeks you can't have unless it meets these really, really strict criteria. Their argument is that, oh, well, since Roe versus Wade in the 70s, we've had tremendous advancements in science and the age of viability for a fetus has actually magically moved. All of a sudden, it's not 22 weeks or 20 weeks. It's now 15 weeks with absolutely no scientific evidence to support that and not understanding that many, uh, you know, pregnant people who want to have, you know, their baby end up miscarrying at 15, 16, 18, 20 weeks and aren't able to sustain life. Um, so we we knew that something like this was coming. Now that it's come, it looks like, at least from where we're sitting currently, that it will be a chipping away at row and not necessarily we wake up one morning and there's no row, right? Yeah. But the the question that that we get left with is, how far will they go? Will they will they say that, well, you know, states are allowed to ban abortion up to 15 weeks? Will they say, well, you know, any any weak number that you pick as long as it is, um, you know, after a, a certain period, will they give a certain period? We don't know at this point. And living in that kind of uncertainty um, is where we've been for you know, 15, 20 years. It's just now we're there with a 6-3 Supreme Court mm -hmm. instead of a Supreme Court where we had more allies, you know? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I woke up this morning and went, of course this is going to be our Monday. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just like, a, I'm just, it's just 
tired. I'm tired. I mm. just I just wish th- things could just calm down for just a second um, so I could just catch my breath, you know? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I um, just got into repro stuff uh, as, as a professional uh, last year, and um, it has, I've obviously learned a lot in the year that I've been working for Ohio RCRC, and I've I've become much more informed about the actual um, threats and laws and all of that um, around abortion. But it wasn't until last year that I realized that like a threat against Roe was a real thing that we would have to deal with. I was always like, okay, they're just gonna like trip at how long you can get an abortion for. Um, and that, <laughs> that sucks. And also like, at least it's still gonna be legal. Um, or th- there's like a limit to how much they can cut back. Um, and so this, uh, honestly, when I heard that the Supreme Court had the potential to like, you know, look at Roe and consider Roe again, um, it st- really scared me. Uh, this is the podcast exclusive, right? So yeah. we could, we could, if we could say whatever we want. Um, you so have to like, keep that in there, though. We can say whatever we want, she says real <laughs> quietly. Of course you can say whatever you want. I'm just but, saying. But, like, I was just like, but my first reaction was, oh, fuck. Um, that this is actually a real thing that's happening right now and something that needs to be, I that I need to be prepared for. I had this reaction last year gearing up towards the election, um, where I was like, okay, the, the, the thing that I've been preparing myself for, like the eventual need to be on the streets and to be in protests, uh, is happening much sooner than I originally expected, but here we are and it's time to strap on our boots and get out there. And that's kind of like a similar feeling that I'm having now is like, Okay, we all knew this was coming. I just didn't want it to happen right now. Um, and now I mean, you know, if we boots. could have scheduled the revolution, obviously we would have, you know, moved it around. But yeah, you know. <laughs> I would have I liked to like get well past graduation. You know, make sure I was in shape so I was ready to have to run away or something. I don't know. Is is there really though a good time for an existential threat to reproductive freedom? I don't know. No. I, I feel like if we could have scheduled it, we would just have, like, the fourth of never or a little after, right? We would just uh, cancel um, it. It was yeah, well... It canceled it. Yeah, so I I think, for me, part of the, the struggle in this is knowing that folk are trying every possible way in terms of the the anti-abortion forced birth agenda side of things. They're trying every possible way they can to disingenuously argue for things that amount to bans on abortion. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't want other people to have it. So they're going to, by whatever means necessary, oppose people's fundamental right to have abortion care. And what we know fundamentally... Uh, you know, n- none of this has changed in, you know, the last 40 years. Fundamentally, people are going to get abortions. Mm-hmm. 
you know, whether whether the law says you can or you can't, whether the law says you're good or you're bad, whether the law says it's up or it's down, people are going to get abortions because that's what people do. People get pregnant. People don't want to be pregnant. And when people don't want to be pregnant, they get abortions. That's how it's going to happen. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're doing. You're going to have some access to abortion. The question is whether you're going to have access to abortion that is befitting the wealthiest nation in the history of the earth, right, that has access to health care in ways that most nations can only dream of and that can make abortion accessible to every person who wants it. The question is whether we're going to live into that promise or not. Are we going to be like we're in 2021 or are we going to be like we're in... I don't know the the Handmaid's Tale, right? Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> yeah. So, like, at, at some point, we we've all got to acknowledge this is not a question of whether or not we have abortion in our society. The question is whether or not we have abortion in our society that supports people and is open, mm-hmm. or whether we have abortion in our society in ways that people have to struggle to access and that ultimately doesn't support all of the goals that we hold as our society. When, when we sit down, you know, I, on a regular basis, you know, because of the community that I live in, I sit down and dialogue with anti-choice folks and with forced birth people because I do not have a choice to just like avoid those folk because if I did, I'd never go outside, Right. When you sit down and you talk to a forced birth person who thinks that every pregnancy that starts should end in birth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from, from conception to birth, right, they're, they're pro-life. Um, they fundamentally will tell you that their hope for the world is thriving communities, safe children, strong families, right? Uh-huh. And for us in Repro and, and those of us who are faithfully pro-choice, that's our goal too, We're right? We want We want thriving communities. We want healthy children. We want strong families. Mm-hmm. Now, when we start talking about what kind of strong families we want, well, now sometimes that differs because there are some people who think that, you know, single parents can't be strong and some people who think that gay people and trans folk having kids can't be strong. And I'm just fundamentally confused about that because some of the strongest people I know in my life are single parents or, you know, folk who are queer who have fought to have their children and be recognized as their children's parents, right? Like, I, I, I don't understand how much stronger you want to get than, you know, my, my two lesbian colleagues who have to fight every day to be recognized as the joint mothers of their children, right? Like, th- those women are strong. <laughs> right, you you talk about strong families. Um, you want to talk about thriving communities. I don't see a future that is thriving if your idea of thriving is having fake clinics that lie to women and that manipulate them into having children through you know telling them lies about science and you know lies about. Uh, the care that they provide, and doing fake sonograms. I just don't see lying as thriving, Mm-mm. right? I don't, and, you know, it might be because I'm just, you know, fat, lazy, and tired, but, like, I tell the truth because I'm too lazy and tired 
to remember all the stuff that people have to come up with yeah. if they want to try to deceive people. Like, I, I don't have time for that. You don't want to create so, a whole backstory. It's just complicated. Yeah, yeah. It, it just is what it is. And if you don't like it, well, change it, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the problem that we run into is that what thriving looks like, what strong families look like, what, uh, you know, having... Uh, children who are supported and and strong and you know ready to meet the challenges of adulthood look like in our communities are very different and we're not talking about that as as a whole we're not talking about what does it look like to have a thriving society because I'll tell you right now if we ban abortion in the United States if somehow you know the Supreme Court gets on a bender and you get a 5-4 decision about like I don't know we recognize the right to life of a zygote right ain't nothing in that kind of decision going to help anybody thrive because it's just going to drive abortion care even further underground it's going to drive abortion care um, you know, even even closer to the edge of non-access. And I'm here to tell you as a pastor, right, as, as a Christian faith leader, there will be churches and Christian pastors and, and uh, Jewish rabbis and synagogues and faith communities across the board. You name any religious tradition, there will be people in that religious tradition helping people get abortions. Whether we have to get people to you know a different state to get an abortion, get people to a different country to get an abortion, or uh, just help people get an abortion right where they are that's against the law but is in congruence with our faith. It's going to happen, and nobody can stop us, because guess what? We're ethical people and can make our own damn decisions. Yeah. See, I, you, we, we went along long enough, I went ahead and cursed. See that? Mm, glory. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, it just, oh, I lost my train of thought. I'm just so tired. I'm just so tired. It's just, mm-hmm. this is exhausting. And mm-hmm. you're right, it's not going to stop um, abortions. It's just going to stop abortions that reflect the kind of society we should be having in 2021. It's going to just set us back as a society several years. A lot of years. Decades, even, I would say. Well, and, and just to make just to make a, a weird connection between our radio broadcast <laughs> and this podcast exclusive, right? Because, like, the the whole the whole radio edit was about uh, Israel Palestine, and we just started off here talking about Mississippi, which Mississippi <laughs> might feel like you know you're in the middle of uh, the Negev Desert, but it's not really sometimes, right? Like oh. abortion as a conversation in Israel is fundamentally different than the United States. Abortion is permitted when determined by a committee that it is you know valid and necessary. The problem with that whole system is people think that there's some kind of oversight committee that like makes you come in and demand your, you know, your access to an abortion. It's literally a committee of doctors and a couple of, you know, typically, you know, religious advisors who look at the paperwork and say, yeah, it works for us. Vast majority of cases are approved. Vast majority of cases that come through. I mean, right up until, you know, 25, 28 weeks sometimes. I mean, there are abortions being provided in Israel that would be illegal to be provided here in the United States, 
right? They have much more permissive laws around abortion. And yet, yet, the people who will stand on the street corner and yell at people going in and out of abortion clinics and scream and yell and, and abuse those people and demand, you know, oh, you're doing these horrible things. They are the same people standing behind and supporting the financial military aid to the nation of Israel that allows all kinds of abortions, right? Like, uh, it, you know, abortion supermarket, like grocery store <laughs> bonanza, blue light special, come on in and have it taken care of, not just taken care of and not just permitted, paid for by the state, by socialized medicine, right? Oh so, God. like, I find that fascinating that we are sitting here with uh, one segment of the American population so incredibly, like, monolithically fixated on abortion you know that small slice of of forced birth americans mm -hmm. they are also just fanatically engaged in supporting israeli violence against palestinians it's fascinating to me fascinating mm -hmm. it's just it's just it's just funny i just think it's funny how how that how that just happens to work and i just keep the, our liver and on onions episode is still mm. like probably my most like it's probably the one I think about the most where we <laughs> where we talk about how it's the it's the same people who are anti-abortion who are also on the DL like getting abortions for themselves and um like it's still it's it's still gonna be it's still gonna be happening. I hope you know honestly if if things uh, go sour in this um, Supreme Court case and uh, reduce access to abortion, I I hope that everyone is just helping men get vasectomies. I hope the conversation changes where every man gets a vasectomy. That's what I want. That's the future that I'm about. Girl, girl, <laughs> now you know that ain't gonna happen. You know that. You know that even though a vasectomy uh, is like a million times safer than childbirth. And it's and not reversible. No, men do not want you going around doing mm. nothing down there. Hell and no. Why bodily Hell autonomy? No. Man. Mm -mm. Not just mean? not just bodily autonomy, but there are a lot of men who just don't want to be seen down there, you know? Like the the number of the number of people who have you know, significant prostate cancer issues, all kinds of issues with, you know, genital warts and whatever else. It's very common knowledge that male health between the belly button and the knees is so bad because men just don't want to talk about it, right? Why do you think we see all these commercials about men saying, I got my colorectal exam, I got my colonoscopy, and you can too? Because men don't want to even think about that, much less do anything about it. And the Lord knows they're not going to do anything about it just to help out the people who are their sex partners, right? Because that is the patriarchy at work, right? I'm just saying, like, as a gay man, right, the, the, the old, uh, the, the old uh, phrase, I don't have a dog in this fight, right? I don't have a sperm in that egg, right? <laughs> it, it, ain't, it, ain't, it ain't going on up in here because, you know, if, if I get somebody pregnant, that'll definitely make the news. We'll have a podcast exclusive on that, right? <laughs> but, like, 
I think about if if things go really south, right? Like Supreme Court comes back and decides to just absolutely eviscerate the last 47 years of jurisprudence around abortion. Um, first place I'm going to be going is someplace that I can figure out how to rally people to get the kind of care that they need. Like, I'm going to be, like, looking around trying to buy a Sprinter van or, like, you know, something that we can do, uh, long-haul trips to Windsor, Canada or, you know, some other place for because we know that this is not going to stop the demand for necessary health care, right? I mean, like, outlawing knee replacements is not going to keep people from having their knees go bad, right? Like, that that's, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm... I'm with you. I'm tired because this is some BS. <laughs> it's, it's like I just I just wanted a nice week. Um, for for those who do not know me personally and are listening to this, uh, my graduation is this Saturday, and I just wanted a nice week where I wouldn't have to worry about anything, and I could just focus on getting to the actual celebration of my, you know, my the pinnacle of my academic achievements. Um, but no, <laughs> the Supreme Court kind of come in here and uh, make things at least a little more complicated for me. Um, so, yeah, it's just I'm I'm very tired, and um, it's just a it's I this all for me goes back to um, in in undergrad I did a you you would think that this would like. I'd never use this again, but in undergrad, I did my senior capstone on Macbeth and about um, how men don't want to feel their feelings, and so they take it out violently. Instead of, uh, in, in Macbeth, instead of admitting the guilt that Macbeth felt around um, killing the king um, to, to gain more power because his wife told him so, um, instead of, instead of expressing that, instead of, like, being able to say, like, hey, I don't actually want to do that, and, like, I'd rather just, like, get power the old-fashioned way, um, he, he just, like, keeps it all inside, has a bunch of soliloquies where he, it shows that he's obviously going through a lot of inner turmoil, and then turns around and, like, kills someone else, because that's the only way that he can take it out, and I think that, like, whenever I think about politics or wars or this attack on abortion um i feel like if we just like let people have mental health care if we uh destigmatize mental health care and we showed people especially men who are fully entrenched in the role um that the patriarchy has given them uh if we gave them a chance to <laughs> to uh, express their feelings outside of a violent system, like, how much better would the world be? It'd be so much better, in my opinion. Um, so, anyway, that's that's how I feel about I, that. I, and I need you to preach that sermon, because that <laughs> that is the sermon we all need up in this place. They told me when I graduated oh from undergrad, they were like, your capstone will follow you ever, everywhere, and you will always be a part of your life. And I was like, I did my capstone on Macbeth. I'm never going to think about that again. I'm, I have a literature major, but, like, I'm not planning on going into academics and literature necessarily. And then, ever since then, it's been, like, the only thing I think about is the, the, this, the way that the patriarchy has screwed over men. And 
that could be a whole podcast series in itself. Um, but alas, uh, it's been a pretty, a, a good size podcast exclusive. So I think, I think that this is at least all I can think of to, to talk about today because I'm just so tired of the consistent having to deal with people who just like, if they could just deal with their own, um, their own personal shit, <laughs> then the absolutely world would be better. And just by way of kind of closing our, our exclusive out, um, we're going to post some links to information about the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization challenge, which is the Mississippi challenge that's going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Um, Supreme Court has promised in their um, taking up of this ruling to consider the question of whether all pre-viability restrictions on abortion are unconstitutional or not. And the assumption has been in the jurisprudence of the court for the last 47 years that pre-viability restrictions, that is restrictions on abortion before a fetus is viable outside the womb, are inherently unconstitutional. Jackson Women's Health Organization is the only operating abortion clinic that provides surgical abortions in the state of Mississippi. They are known as the Pink House, and you can find them on social media as well as their um, clinic escort group, which is just this amazing group of fantastic advocates. They are called Pink House Defenders. They are literally on the front line every single day. Um, they have very limited laws, so people can come right up to that clinic. They can have amplica- amplification devices, huge rallies that try to stop people from accessing care there, screaming day and night into the clinic walls. And these people keep abortion accessible for you know patients throughout Um, Jackson, Mississippi, and that region, please, 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 if you are a praying person in your religious tradition, pray for these people. If you, you know, can send them some good energy, light a candle, think about them. Um, I I have a a good friend uh, in the United Methodist tradition. She says, if you're not a praying person, get out your checkbook, right? (laughs) Write them a check, right? Um, And even if you are a praying person, feel free to send them some money because those folk are doing the Lord's work, whatever your version of the Lord's work might be, right? Um, Just remember them in in your thoughts during these times and remember that there are real people doing really good work in this movement and they're not going to be stopped. We're not going to be stopped. Ohio RCRC, you know, our work is going to continue on doing this work because it is essential that faithfully pro-choice voices be heard and change the culture around this kind of rising tide of forced birth extremism. We know that's not where the majority of Ohioans are. We know that's not where the majority of Americans are. And we're going to continue to make that voice heard. Yeah. Well, uh, it's uh, been... I don't know if good is the right word. It's been good talking to you. I mean, like, these are exhausting things to talk about, but um, it's good to have another podcast episode. So um, thanks for talking, and we'll be on in two weeks. Bye. Bye.